Please turn with me this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 30. As we finish up our last couple of chapters in this book. And again, as I mentioned last week, we will be um, starting a study on the pastoral epistles, which is First and Second Timothy and Titus in the New Testament. So in order to prepare yourself for that, I'd encourage you to begin reading through those small books. Uh, they're pretty short. Um, wouldn't take you much time to read through. through all three of them, actually. And so just encourage you to get a, a general context of where we're going to be. But we do need to complete our time in First Samuel. Before we do that, so let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with this text this morning. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would give us focus uh, and clarity as we come to it. Um, as we learn about these characters of old, characters that many of us have been learning about since we were barely old enough to talk, give us uh, focus when it comes to our own uh, inserted understanding of these events and these people. Lord, help us to draw meaning from the text and not add it to it. Uh, help us to be convicted of our sin, where that sin is, and most of all, to bring you glory when it comes to our lives and understanding of your word. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. And so as I read through this text this week, um, this is our last look at David um, in the book of First Samuel. And it reminded me of a common phrase that gets thrown around today in Christianity. Um, either to affirm this statement or even to uh, denounce it and then talk about why it's false. It's still very common. And it's the idea that God will not give you more than you can handle. Folks who say this often have good intentions when they say it. They quote a verse like 1 Corinthians 10.13 that says God won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Um, but then they begin applying something like temptation to all things. Uh, and ultimately this leads to dependent, uh, dependence upon oneself and then even anger at God when those things that you can't handle inevitably arise in your life. And so what is the truth? Of course, God gives us more than we can handle. Why? Because he wants us to rely solely upon him, not on ourselves, in order to come through adversity. A reliance on God is what our Savior Jesus demonstrated on earth. This is what we should do as well. However, this can become a work. This can be, become something that we attempt to earn righteousness with if we aren't careful because we begin to try harder or to do more in order to only rely on God, thus relying on ourselves more and more. So it's hard. What's the answer? I think David shows us a good paradigm here in this passage today that, we sh that should help us deal with adversity, with, with loss of different kinds. And, and I'm going to talk about loss a lot today. And I'm not just talking about like the loss of a loved one, and it definitely could be that. But anytime we lose what we would consider normal, that is a major loss in our life. I think of this child at, or student at Murray High 
Their family is going through a loss right now. She's still with us, but their normal has changed completely. They're struggling. And so that's what I mean when we're talking about loss. And I think, sadly, there's too often a divide between this person who's going through uh, adversity and a person who is uh, letting go and letting God, so to speak. Uh, unfortunately, we, we have created this divide in Christianity, and there needs not be that. So I think we're going to look at this idea, uh, how to know when to work and when to let go, uh, and even if there's a, some sort of false dichotomy there, which I believe there is. So we're going to consider uh, this in three main points. Mourning as a part of life. Uh, and the second point, God is in control. The third point, everyone gets the prize at the end. And so with that, let's read the text. First uh, Samuel chapter 30 in its entirety. You may remain seated as I read this chapter. First <clears throat> Samuel chapter 30 starting at verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. Because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue... For you shall surely overtake and shall, shall surely rescue. So David set out and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those who, had, who were left stayed behind. But David pursued he and four hundred men. Two hundred stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate. And they gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, and he had not eaten bread or drunk water in three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant of a, to, a, to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev, of the Cherethites, and against which belongs to Judah, and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by, by God 
that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad over the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of the great spoil that, that, had, that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before them and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had left at the brook Bezor. And when they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him, and when David came near to the people whom, to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that which may, except that each man may lead his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders in Judah, saying, Here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth, of the Negev, and in Jatir, in Aror, in Sifmoth, in Estamoa, in Rachel, in the cities of the Jehemelites, in the, in the cities of the Kenites, in Horma, in Borshon, in Atak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Amen. This is God's word. And so quickly, just to review, remember last time we were with David's story, he was released uh, by King Achish of the Philistines to go back home to Ziklag, which was David's uh, city in the Philistine region. Uh, David was there hiding from Saul, remember, uh, and he had kind of made a home there for like a year or so, and the attitude of his men and him as they were going home was probably a happy one. It was probably good. They were about 60 miles from Ziklag when they left the Philistine army, and it was probably a happy trip, if you think about it, rejoicing that they had been spared from uh, the decision to have the fight against their own people or to turn against the Philistines, which either one would have been a bad thing. Um, and so they didn't have to do either. They were able to return home peacefully. But when they returned home, all of their celebration was kind of turned on its head and switched to mourning. And I think it's funny how we like to hang on to the verse that we read this morning from Psalm 30. Weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And that's obviously a good verse for us. But I think many times in life... We see just the opposite, don't we? We see that it seems like joy is fleeting. 
Joy is something that kind of sticks around for just a minute or two, and then we're back to the slog and the grind, the part where the real world stinks and it's a sad place. I mean, you just turn on the TV last night and there's more terrorist attacks. You want to think that maybe we're going to just not see that for several years and months, but they're beginning to happen weekly. It's a sad place that we live. We can't even watch the news anymore, hardly, without being reminded of that. So when we, as we read Psalm 30, and t- turn with me to Psalm 30. I want to look at it together, and I think it's, it's a good one for us to look at. I want us to see this. This is a psalm of David. David wrote this. And as I read through this, I want you to kind of note the roller coaster ride that David seems to be going on even in this psalm. He says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cry to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought my soul up from Sheol. You restored to me, to, to me life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. But your favor, O Lord, you made my mountains stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to you I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing, and have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. I love how it ends there in verses 11 and 12. We kind of have this roller coaster of David crying out for mercy and receiving the blessing and understanding the blessings of the Lord, but then crying out again and wondering about his own death and despair and his enemies. But yet he understands that his sackcloth will be turned to gladness. You know, the sackcloth is the symbol of mourning, what they would put upon themselves when they would mourn. Well, it's going to be turned to gladness. And I think that's where I hope that we'll end up as we understand this text this morning as well, understanding this ride that David had sent himself on. And so that's the first, the first point is that mourning is a part of life. And so David returns home from Ziklag, or to Ziklag, and discovered that a city had been burned to the ground. All of his people had been taken with him. Uh, there were no dead bodies laying around. There were no bodies, period. Everyone was gone. Whoever had raided their city had decided to kidnap everyone. And so how do they respond? Well, they weep, and they weep until they can weep no longer. It, it exhausts them to the point of weeping. Of course they do. I mean, isn't this what we would all do? Let's remember that these are real people here. This isn't like a movie. Uh, you know, movies tend to, uh, people in movies tend to kind of shake things off very quickly. But in real life, there's real loss, and real loss causes us to act out in distress. 
many times. Mourning is a normal reaction. And what, are they, what do David's men even want to do as a part of this? Think of all that David and his men had been through. And now they want to stone him because of their distress. Up until this time, it seems like a pretty loyal bunch. But now they've thrown all loyalty out the window because everything they know and love is gone. And I think we all can understand how this feels to one degree or another um, to be completely normal one minute and then when something or someone that we love and care about is threatened, we become strange individuals. When I was first married, I was at the church working there in uh, Mississippi and uh, I mean we were literally probably been married maybe two or three months and I was on the phone uh, with with Emily and she was in our apartment and all of a sudden I heard like this crash and then I heard her crying in the background well I had no idea what was going on and so I of course dreamed up several scenarios as to what was going on was someone in the house? Was someone hurting her? So I ran out of the building, and I drove on two wheels the entire way to our apartment, which was, I mean, imagine going from uh, 16th Street all the way over to 4th Street, um, which is about like that, going through the middle of town and through like a nice uh, city square with people walking on sidewalks and whatnot, and I was going about 80, uh, running stoplights, like I said, on two wheels, Dodging track tra- uh, traffic, you know, straightening the curves, flattening the hills like the Dukes of Hazard. I break through the door, ready to take down an army, and she had just fallen and hurt herself. And she was fine. What happened? What came over me? I thought I had lost something that I really cared about. And so something crazy came over me. All of you can relate that the normal me that drives 10 miles under the speed limit was going way over and did not care who and which cop was trailing me I was actually hoping they would all come this is a normal human response we do anything to prevent loss when it happens we are devastated no matter what that loss might be again it could just be a loss of normal but it devastates us It starts when we're real little, right? When we lose our toys or when we lose a pet. And then it eventually ends up when we're losing loved ones. It's a part of the human condition. So the question for us today, is it less Christian then for us to mourn loss? Does it show a lack of faith when we mourn, when we cry and we weep until we can't weep anymore? Is it a problem? Well, the quick answer is no. In fact, show me someone who can't weep and who isn't affected by loss, and I'll show you a robot. It's part of the normal condition. Why? Because the Lord made us this way. We are made after his image. Read in the scriptures. When the Lord loses something, he mourns. He mourned after his people Israel who sought other gods besides him. What did Jesus do while he was on this earth? And he lost a close friend of his whom he quickly was going to raise from the dead. It's not that Jesus didn't have the power to correct the loss because he did, but he still mourned because he was human. 
So why is it that we have a problem with weeping? Why do we have a problem with mourning when it comes to the church? Because we see it as a non-spiritual thing sometimes. We see strength as spiritual. We see saying everything is fine. Everything is going to be okay as a spiritual thing. Smiling even when we feel bad as a spiritual thing, sadly. When we see some, someone crying, or when, we, or when we wait till we're alone to cry, till we show any emotion, we see that as the norm, right? To only show that emotion when we're off by ourselves because we want no one to see us as weak. That is the right spiritual thing, right? That's what we see because crying and showing emotion is weakness. And if we don't want to do anything in the Christian life, we don't want to show weakness. Why are we taught that? Why are we shown that over and over again? What's happening to us? Well, in my mind, we have become convinced that our ability to deal with these issues ourselves is what saves us. So we deal with it the best we can, as you've heard that quote, as opposed to just coming undone, which is sometimes the right thing to do. Multiple times over the course of his life, we see David tearing his clothes and weeping. Why does he do that? Why is he able to do that and maintain his kingly image? Well, look with me at verse 6. It says that David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul for each of his sons and daughters. But what did David do? David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And I think it's important for us to understand that David shows us how to mourn well. It wasn't that David was the most spiritual man there and he was actually showing strength while everyone else was showing weakness. It was just that David's strength remained in the Lord his God. He was free to weep and he was free to mourn because his strength was not in his own resolve, but his strength was in the Lord who sets all things right and who understands and knows all things. And I think that's important for us to grab a hold of this morning. It's okay for us to weep. And so I want to lead into that with the second point, that God is in control. So what does David do in the middle of this distress? Again, don't picture David here as being some sort of resolute man in the middle of all of this uh, down and out people lying around crying. David's like, all right, let's pick ourselves up and get to work. It's nothing like that. David is sad, too, where he's we're reminded in the text that he's lost his wives. He's lost the ones he loves. And so what does he do? His men want to kill him. Everyone's upset. He calls for this ephod, which, again, the ephod is a, is a tool they use to discern the will of God. And so what does he ask? He isn't asking some sort of obscure question like, Lord, why did you do this? Lord, what's your, uh, what's your deal? Why don't you do right by us or anything like that? He isn't asking something obscure. He's just simply asking the Lord if he should do something that he was probably going to do anyway. 
He gets the ephod and he says, Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And of course, the Lord says, pursue them and overtake them. You shall surely rescue your people. So should David have pursued his family, or or should David have pursued his family and the families of his men? Absolutely. Then why did he ask the Lord for affirmation? The only question might be that his men were exhausted from a three-day march, which we're going to see that soon. But there's no question as to whether or not he should get his people back. Obviously, David's like a warrior among warriors. A few Amalekites don't scare him. But he asked the Lord anyway for affirmation. And I think a lot of times, particularly in times of distress and difficulty, we might be hesitant to do anything because we're afraid that we might do the wrong thing. We're afraid that we might do the wrong thing, I think especially when it comes to what is the right thing for us to do, what is the moral thing for us to do. And why do we do this? Again, because we want to do the thing that appears strong, that appears that we're not weak, we understand what we're doing. We want to appear godly or strong or happy, even when it's not necessarily or necessary that we do that. I know people who, and this is kind of a, an aside of mine as an example, but this is an example that could be any other example left in this, but this is just one that happens to be kind of near to me right now <clears throat> because of some friends of mine. Uh, people who, I know people who have left churches for various reasons. Um, I mean, I think all of us here can relate to that for one, one level or another. Sometimes the process can be a complicated one. Um, I'm not saying it's right or wrong to do that. It's just, it's a thing that happens. There's always, however, some loss that is associated with it. Whether it's a a bad thing because we're leaving something uh, that we feel to be wrong and we need to leave that, or whether it's a good thing but we're still leaving and there's some loss associated with that, um, it doesn't make it any less difficult. I've served two churches in full-time ministry both at which when we left, we felt like it was the right thing, but we loved those places. We hated to leave them. We still love those places. Leaving is difficult. But oftentimes, what's interesting among Christians is that we compound the problem when we go to find the new church by what has been termed uh, church shopping. And you've all heard my spiel about that from time to time, I'm sure. I'm generally not a fan of this term, church shopping. And I think you, you understand what I mean by that. And I understand where the term comes from. You, you're trying to find a church that believes like you, that generally doesn't disrupt the way that you understand a Christian should worship. And I understand that may be a difficult process. But I think we tend to over-spiritualize the process by trying to feel the Lord's presence or... Uh, finding where we fit or whatever. Again, just a way to make much of something that we should be doing anyway. This is something we should do. Should you be praying about which church you go to? Absolutely. Should you be seeking out the wisdom of the Lord and others? Absolutely. Should it take you a year to do this? No. Serve the church someplace because it's right for you to do that. Now, I think the same idea translates to other situations. There are times when the right thing for us to do is obvious. 
And we can let our grief and our distress cloud that. It doesn't mean that we don't grieve well and we don't mourn our loss. Absolutely, we should do that. But we don't want to let that loss cause us to drift into some sort of immorality. David didn't ditch his family or forsake the families of his men. He went after them. He very well could have ran off. He was pretty good at evading people at this point in his life. He could have left all the men who were wanting to stone him and went back to Israel and started his kingdom. But no, he did what was right. And where do we see this, I think, in its fullest form? Well, from our Lord Jesus. Turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. You can keep your finger here. I'm going to refer back to this again. Luke chapter 15. Let me read the first seven verses here. It's a familiar parable of our Lord. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that has lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. So what's going on here with the Lord? I think he appeals to their humanity. He's talking to the Pharisees who were judging him. He says, what man among you does not leave the ninety-nine to go after the one? He's appealing to the fact that they are all probably sheep owners at some level or not. This is something that they would all do. A sheep is a prize in this culture. They understand that to be a valuable thing. Of course they would leave and go find the one. Under all costs they would do that. And they would go and bring that sheep back to the fold and there would be celebration. There would be mourning at the loss, sure, but that does not require inaction. And so then how much more does the Lord rejoice once he retrieves a sinner lost to sin and death? Doesn't Jesus go after his lost sheep? Absolutely. Why did he do that? Because he made a promise to the Father. You can read Ephesians 1. I think it's a great detail of that promise. It tells us our redemption is set forth in Christ. From when? From the foundations of the earth. This is an agreement that they had. We were lost. He found us. He found us by trading his life for ours. And I think that brings us to the last point, that everyone gets the prize. So David and his men, they go out and they rout the Amalekites. 
But only, they had, only after they had to leave behind a third of the army who were apparently too exhausted to continue on and to fight. They had to cross some sort of brook, and it may have been tough, or maybe they couldn't swim, or I don't know. They just didn't go. Well, David and his men, they obtained this vast spoil. They got back everything they owned, plus all of this livestock and property from their enemies. And when they returned, there was the thought of, well, these guys didn't fight, so they shouldn't get anything. Absolutely not. And you can understand the sentiment of these people, right? They went out and risked their lives to get everything back, so they maybe shouldn't get anything since they stayed back here and kind of played in the water while we were all fighting. Well, read verses 23 through 25 with me. This is David's response to those, what the text calls wicked and worthless fellows. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the man that came against us. Who would listen to you for this matter? For as is, for, for as is his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays with the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. So what did David do? Well... He gave it to everyone because what did he understand that the spoil was ultimately from the Lord? And I think there's a great spiritual principle for us here as well to see. We're going to see this again in Luke 15, so turn with me there again. And this is the parable of the prodigal son. You guys are all familiar with this parable. The younger son uh, demands his inheritance from his father. He goes off and he squanders it away. And remember that scene where he's like uh, eating, he's like sharing a feeding trough with the pigs and he's just longing to go back and he hopes that his dad will at least accept him back as one of his servants, if not as a son. And the father runs out to meet him and clothes him and gives him a ring and he throws a party for him. And who is upset? The older son. Why is the older son upset? Well, because he... uh, has always done everything right. He's always worked for his dad. He's always done the right thing. He's always been there when he was supposed to. The younger son did not do this. The younger son doesn't deserve anything. Look at me. I'm Mr. Spiritual. I deserve everything. Who's Jesus pointing to? He's pointing towards the Pharisees, obviously. So let's look at verse 31 and 32 to see the response of the father in the parable. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The celebration has nothing to do with you. It's basically what the Father is saying. It has to do with the redemption of that which was lost. And I think for each of us, the principle here is that we're each going to have trouble in our lives. And how we walk through those times, how we trust the Lord during those times, how we rely on him versus relying on ourselves, this is what will define us. This is who we will be over the course of our lives. We have all had those situations that have changed us as people. 
Some of us will be able to do this flawlessly, like David does in this story. David's not going to do that later in his life, mind you, but in this story he does a good job with it. Some of us will struggle. We're never going to get this whole dealing with loss thing right. We're always going to struggle. It's always going to be difficult for us. It's going to change us. It's going to mar us. It's going to make life difficult. We're going to chase after the wrong things. We're going to try to be strong when we should mourn, and we're going to remain weak when we should be in action. The life of the curse will take its toll. And like the younger brother, we might only have be left with rags longing for scraps from the table. However, know this. We're probably all going to lie somewhere between that continuum, I'm sure. Know this. The redemption of the Lord, the salvation that comes only through Jesus Christ, is for all. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It isn't only for the Davids of the world. It is for people like me and like you, the ones who get it wrong more often than not. It isn't just for the ones who fought the battle and who went back to retrieve the spoil. It's for the ones who were too exhausted to go on, and we all understand what that feels like. Why? Why is it for both? Because who does the work? Jesus Christ does the work. Your fighting in this life amounts to filthy rags when compared with the righteousness of Christ who fought for your soul on Calvary, and he won He nailed your sin to the cross, and he left death in the tomb. And so in conclusion, we will experience loss. It is part of the human condition. It's part of sin. It's a part of the curse of this world. And we look forward to the day when we're with our Lord Jesus, when there will be no more loss. But right now, we will experience it. We're going to lose loved ones. We're going to lose normal in our lives. And it's okay for us to mourn because Jesus is our strength. He wept, so should we. But our weeping shouldn't cause us to slip into inaction and immorality. There is still work to be done. We continue in that work. But it isn't our ability to continue on that gives us the victory. It's his shed blood that covers up our sin. And so, church, let us mourn well because we live in a cursed world. However, let us put our trust in the Lord, and he will be your strength. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we struggle with this because we really want to put on the best face most of the time. It's not even something we think about. It's just something we do. We don't want to be seen as weak. We want to be seen as strong. But Lord, help us to know that you are strong when we are weak. It is your strength that we rely on. Your strength that David relied on. Your strength that our Lord Jesus relied on. And your strength that we should rely on. And so, Father, help us to do that. Help us to mourn well over the curse of this world and to 
go out and to preach the gospel as far as the curse is found, to seek out and long for redemption, and especially for the redemption of your lost sheep. Might we share your word with them as we go on about our days, as we long for the redemption of all things, as we long for you to return. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.